0: Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also, not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 42, Control. Recorded here on December 9th, 2022, this is the anniversary of the time I bought the Offspring's new album in 2003 called Splinter. I had a CD release party amid final exams to celebrate, and very few people came. But I enjoyed it. (laughs) But forget about 2003, thank you for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oakes of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Atomage Vampire, Cat and the Brain, and our outro is Hummingbird. Before we get into corrections and dinosaur news, I want to just quickly mention right here I've got an essay on why rereads are fun, exciting and rewarding. Based on a quick two-word reference that's baited me into a rabbit hole that's yielded a 6,500-word essay. Uh, Just know I'm going to hit a deep dive off of a diving platform that negligibly exists. And I dive so deep, it's gratuitous overkill. And that may not be to everyone's taste, and I acknowledge that. But you can check it out. It's very interesting. Uh, It covers a lot of interesting ground. And I've called it Looking for Mr. Good Bites as a companion piece to this episode. I've kept it separate for a couple reasons. uh, Namely... It is, namely, it is not family friendly uh, in terms of content that is separate. Listen at your own listen at your own discretion. Corrections. This isn't a correction, but maybe a neat observation. We all know how movies, especially monster movies, and especially Jurassic Park films, wantonly exaggerate things so that they're bigger and and in theory anyhow better. Well, even Jurassic Park's computer system falls victim to this phenomenon. In the novel, Arnold has the unenvious task of inspecting each line of code one by one to figure out what Nedry did to the system, which is said to be half a million lines of code in the book. Well, a half million, be damned, know what sounds even bigger and better than a half million? Two million! So that's how many lines of code Arnold passively dismisses sorting through one by one in the film. I missed an opportunity to expand upon another stylistic technique, a famous archetype, when it was raised earlier in the book as well. Mr. Robert Muldoon is said to be, quote, the famous white hunter from Nairobi, on page 98, in that expansive and massive chapter called called The Tour, which we had to split into three episodes. Well, I missed the great white hunter archetype introduced via Ed Regis on the tour. When Crichton employs an archetype, he's basically using a crib sheet to portray a variety of stock characteristics upon someone in one fell swoop. Entrepreneurs sort of call this a turnkey operation, and that's what employing an archetype is like. In this case, by declaring Muldoon the great white hunter, a series of specific qualities are implied. Qualities of this archetype suggest he's quote, European or North American in background, which in this case refers to his South African background, where Europeans have a long history of colonizing that country. The archetype will have plied his trade in Africa, specializing in big game hunting, which is focusing on big animals for meat or commercially viable products like horns, antlers, furs, tusks, and more. This archetype also derives his income from organizing and leading safaris and from paying clients. In some cases, they make their money by selling ivory. So Crichton employs this archetype in a, in a straightforward manner, and Muldoon is further developed, though not to any great extent, from this foundational archetype. And finally, I've kind of been wrong about the belie- believing the hype about Twitter's collapse so far. I started to believe that uh, Twitter was going down, though I didn't go so far as to announce to the public where else they can find me and things like that. I mean, I like Twitter. I think people are far too focused on what's wrong with angry, opinionated, and dangerous people and blaming the platform they use instead of the people. But like Newslash folks, guess what types of people are the ones who are desperate to invest in major media outlets? Yeah, probably angry, opinionated, and dangerous people. Believe me, the Care Bears aren't clamoring to buy CNN. Though, if that were a Netflix special, I'd probably check out the pilot episode of that. Dinosaur news! In a paper published in May 2018 in Current Biology, the ancestry of modern birds is examined at the point of the end Cretaceous extinction. As measured by, quote, an extraordinary early Cenozoic radiation of crown birds, Neorniths, in the fossil record, this paper says there are questions regarding the underlying mechanisms by which how the, quote, deepest lineages within crown birds survived across the dinosaur extinction, quote, particularly since this global catastrophe eliminated even the closest stem group relatives of Neorniths. The paper looks at what types of birds are in the fossil record after the end-Cretaceous ex- extinction. Quote, here, ancestral state reconstructions of and ecology reveal a strong bias toward taxa exhibiting predominantly non-arboreal lifestyles across the KPG, with multiple convergent transitions toward predominantly arboreal ecologies later in the Paleocene and eocene. Uh, The KPG stands for the Cretaceous Cenozoic Extinction Event. There's a boundary there. Or that the survivors of the extinction appear to have been predominantly terrestrial birds, and many different types are apparently evolved to arboreal lifestyles. Prior to the extinction event, the study says that it's inferred that anantiornithines were filling the trees, as they were the most diverse and widespread Mesozoic avialans because global paleobotanical and palynological, which is data derived from studying pollen, shows that the meteor impact triggered widespread destruction of forests. The author suggests, quote, that the ecological filtering, due to the temporary loss of significant plant cover across the KPG boundary selected against any flying dinosaurs, the avialae, committed to an arboreal ecology, resulting in a predominantly non-arboreal post-extinction neornithine avifauna. Okay, predominantly that post-extinction neornithine avifauna was comprised of quote the Paleonathae, the Galloanserae, and the terrestrial total-clade neoaves that rapidly diversified into the broad range of avian ecologies familiar today. The palaenathae are the ancient jawed birds that today comprise the ostrich, cassowary, and other big birdies like that, the gallioanserae are the family of fowl or chicken-like birds we have today, like ducks as well, and the Neoaves, which is all the rest of the birds you can imagine. So this theory provides, quote, a unifying hypothesis for the KPG-associated mass extinction of arboreal stem birds, as well as for the KPG radiation of arboreal crown birds. Quote, it also provides a baseline hypothesis to be further refined pending the discovery of additional neornithine fossil from the Late Cretaceous and earliest paleogene. So it was the loss of trees and vegetation that knocked everything out, and only a few lineages of Neornithines survived to vigorously evolve and create all the birds we have today, which boil down to the neo aves the ancient-jawed big birds, and fowls. For our second article, we have traces of a new spinosaur to mention from the Geological Bulletin of China from perhaps September 2002, which was called New Materials of the Early Cretaceous Spinosaurid Teeth of Nepei Basin, Fusui County, Guangxi. The discovery of teeth that bear a resemblance to spinosaurid teeth was in the Napei ba- Basin in southwestern Guangxi, which is a southern province of China. The authors say that the Aptian vertebrae fauna from the Nepei Basin is known to feature mainly sauropods, theropods, and iguandodontian dinosaurs as well as some sharks, ray-finned fishes, turtles, and crocodiles. This particular collection of paleofauna suggests that this area is closely related to the Kokkurat, formation of northeastern Thailand, which are both considered to be the same age. These new spinosaurid teeth are likely in the Spinosaurinae family, and they quote, resemble... Siamasaurus, which is known from that Kokkurat formation. There are two shapes of teeth, morph type 1 and morph type 2. It's said that one of the teeth more closely resembles the Siamasaurus, and the other are similar but don't resemble it quite as much. They are Spinosaurid, but not necessarily Siams, Siamasaurus. The paper says, quote, The similar Spinosaurid teeth most probably suggest their closer affinity of Spinosaurids between the Nepe Basin, Guangxi, and the northeastern Thailand during the late early Cretaceous. So now you know, more spinosaurs down there somewhere. So with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. My guests today are Garrett and Sabrina, a husband and wife team, and the dinosaur enthusiasts behind the number one rated dinosaurs show available in podcast form, I Know Dino, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the show, Garrett and Sabrina. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah,
1: thanks for having us.
0: Is number one correct? If I I search dinosaur podcast, I'm pretty sure you guys have to be number one.
1: (laughs)
2: We, I, I think we have the number one most episodes uh, of a dinosaur podcast, so yeah. we're number one in that way at the very least. Yeah, just
0: Joe Rogan <laughs> has to set a one dinosaur episode and suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I met Garrett and Sabrina while free climbing, an unscalable plateau in the deepest and darkest heart of continental Africa, hoping to be the first human of the modern age to set eyes upon the lost world that was only rumored to exist by the most imaginative... 19th century novelists like sir arthur conan doyle but when i reached the massive summit instead of discovering a lost world that time forgot filled with believed to be extinct species from tens of millions of years ago i found a lot of moss some tough little bushes and a few spiders that were pretty regular looking (laughs) but uh on the way down i became one of the almost three million downloads from the i know dino podcast and as a result Garrett and sabrina as mysteriously as stromer's riddle or the lost dinosaurs of egypt has agreed to join me as guests on the show today so thank you for joining me today (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's pretty epic how we met. Yeah, I forgot
0: that <laughs> I know you forgot that. I know, I know. <laughs> but we'll never forget the day. Um, so while we're talking about exploring the fable jungles of Africa, uh, as I understand from being a listener to your show, a foundational element of what's become this, you know, di- monolith of dinosaur entertainment began as like building a map of dinosaur museums around the world that would be cool to visit. I'm not entirely sure if that's correct, but what role did building maps uh, and places to visit player uh, in building up your website and podcast?
1: Oh, yeah, you, you've you got it. That's I uh, love a good map. <laughs> <laughs> that is basically how we started, was we rediscovered our love of dinosaurs because we lived near the American Museum of Natural History in New York at the time, so we were going all the time, and we decided... hey, let's start a map, see where else we can go for dinosaurs.
2: We were going to move back to California not too long, and we are trying to figure out, out, like, where are all these dinosaur museums across the country, too? So we could find some stops along the way, Mm -hmm. and we did find some
1: stops
2: to go to, (laughs) and then we have since expanded to all over the world, mostly with the help of our listeners, because... A lot of these museums, especially in other countries, don't always have an online presence. And if they do, it might not be in a language we can read. Mm-hmm. And then we can't even tell, you know, do they have dinosaurs in this museum? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's been really helpful. So now we've got over 300 museums yeah. on the map, I think, all over the place. The one, hardest one to keep up with is China because they make a new dinosaur museum. It seems like every month there's a new one mm-hmm. popping up because have so many discoveries. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of museums. And you've obviously gone to
0: some terrific places to visit some of these terrific museums. Um, I've heard there's one in Russia that's really supposed to be incredible. And uh, certainly there's what appears to be every holotype specimen for a period of time went to the uh, the IVPP in China. Um, what are what are some of the places on your wish list? What are some of the places you got to that were, were really special?
2: The ones that I like the best are ones that have like a personal connection to us. Mm-hmm. So I love the American Museum of Natural History because that's where we rediscovered our love of dinosaurs. And they have my favorite dinosaur on a pretty good display which is Ankylosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh what other what other favorites do we have there's a Royal roll museum that's sort of like dinosaur mecca yeah. i would say And you've
1: got boreal pelton's oh yeah. yeah yeah
2: boreal Pelta is really so, beautiful
1: you've got a good ankylosaur on display garrett's in <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> the rom too they got the Zool sometimes
1: yeah. i like the ones where we were able to make a whole trip around it uh, and like a good road trip so I mean, Royal Tyrrell falls into that. our first road trip. What was it? Royal Tyrrell, Philip J. Curry Museum, Museum of the Rockies, and it was called Two Medicine at the time. Now it's called Dinosaur. The
2: Montana Dinosaur Center, I think, is their name now.
1: Yeah. And then in uh, Australia, we did a road trip through the outback and also through many of the states of Australia. We just visited all the museums. That was mm-hmm. really cool Yeah, being on the dinosaur trail there. They've got a <laughs>
2: couple museums way out in the outback which there's, like, nothing else there, and it's just all dinosaur, and it's it's really cool.
1: There's the Lightning Ridge one, too, where they have all the opalized fossils. That's my favorite. mm -hmm. reminiscing about the time they let me hold a a solid opal sauropod tooth, and it was amazing and also terrifying. But. (laughs) 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 <laughs> that's excellent
0: Yeah, if I understand Australia correctly they, they keep everything very close together So it's easy to get from one place to the next <laughs> Yeah Could be exactly.
2: yeah. Uh, I was just going to say real quick There was a time we were driving from The Australia Age of Dinosaur Museum In Winton to Aramanga Which is a town of 30 people I think like three or 400 miles away mm-hmm. And we wanted to get there before sunset Because that's when all the kangaroos Start hopping out on the road And destroying cars <laughs> And we were getting there, like, around sunset, and we could see the the kangaroo all around the edges of the road just standing under the trees and, like, looking at us as we went by. Like, oh, no, just stay there and stay <laughs> there for a little bit longer. we got to get to...
0: <laughs> they were just waiting for darting into traffic time. <laughs> it's coming soon. we got to clock in. Right on. So I'm not... Uh, I wouldn't call myself an emissary from Canada nor an ambassador, but it sounds like, obviously, when you go to the Tyrell or the Phil Curry or the ROM, you get to come into Canada. So, um... Have you been into the the Canadian Museum of Nature in Ottawa? Did you get up there?
1: Not not yet. That's on our list. Yeah, we haven't been
2: there. We also haven't been to the Royal Saskatchewan Museum. That's another one Mm -hmm. that we want to get to.
0: Yeah, they'd have cool stuff there for sure. Well, uh, Rama's very good, of course, and uh, the Tyrell, of course. I did get to the Tyrell, uh, I think it was in 2005, for a wedding. It wasn't in Drumheller, but it was uh, in Alberta, and so we got out there. But so under construction, there you can imagine there's great big walls, and then there's a poster, so you can't see what's on the other side, and it says uh, "Super Theropod Exhibit," and that wasn't yet up, up there. I was like, "What? What a bummer!" Because that would have been that have been nice to have seen.
2: Did they have uh, Black Beauty, the T Rex, mounted at that point?
0: <sighs> I remember spending a lot of time actually outside. Oh, oh yeah. When we were there, and then uh, there were there were a lot of excellent models out on the grounds, and then uh, a lot of seeing the hutus or there was like rock formations. I don't remember spending a lot of time in the museum, and I don't think I had a camera, um, which mm-hmm. is hard to believe. Yeah. And I said you guys have been on like a few rock rambles, or is it? Do you get on excavations? Do you take a class on it, or or, or what's your field work uh, experience been like?
1: We've been on one dig in Montana, and uh, I found out I'm very bad at it because they asked me if I was color. We we're doing a <laughs> Uh, what do you call it? Like a test? <laughs> or, you know, they're they're kind of training us on what to look for. And uh, there was a, a fossil, I guess, right by my toe. And they kept asking me, like, to point it out. I had no idea. So they asked <laughs> if I was colorblind. Yeah, because uh,
2: in this one formation, since they had washed out a while ago and they had some iron content, they were all orange. Okay. So they were like, look for the orange rock. <laughs> That's weird. I was like, I don't see it. Is it that? Or they're like, no. Is it that? No. <laughs> right by your foot. So I don't...
1: Like I'm cut out for fossil hunting. But you did
2: find the fossil between the two of us. She's the only one who actually found a fossil on that trip. Oh,
1: it's a piece of eggshell, so a completely different color Mm -hmm. and texture.
2: That was just black (laughs) and bumpy. Yeah. That would have been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. We have seen, we've gone to a couple dig sites where other people were digging up. That's a little more our speed. (laughs) Experts do it. (laughs) And then we've gone to lots of cool places where it's sort of a quarry in situ, like Dinosaur National Monument in Utah, where you can see the wall of all the fossils. That's that's where we like we like to be there after all the hard work is done, <laughs> so we can just enjoy it.
0: We can't help uh, talk about Canada without uh, perhaps mentioning that uh, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontologists had their had their annual convention in Toronto, in Canada. You guys got to come here. It sounds like you spent a lot of time covering more than you probably could have covered, <laughs> as desperately as you could. Um, what was your impression of
2: Toronto? What did you think?
1: Oh, Toronto's great. We, let's see, we managed to be there a couple times before. Yeah, it was
2: probably our third or fourth visit to Toronto, I yeah. think. Yeah.
1: So, and, but it's always good to see the ROM. Mm-hmm. And Oh, and I guess in previous visits, Gary, you had been able to see Research Casting. Oh,
2: yeah. I, I invited myself to Research Casting <laughs> International. That's the the people that make all the mounts for the ROM and also a lot of the major places around the world because they did. The new mounts for the Smithsonian, they're working on the mounts for Yale now. They did a blue whale for the Natural History Museum in London. They're, like, probably the go-to place oh, for it. Yeah,
1: it's probably, you go to almost any museum and you see a dinosaur, they probably did it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not no, even dinosaur. A big one.
1: Yeah, a prehistoric animal. <laughs>
2: yeah, they're amazing. So going into their place, that was probably my favorite thing, because they, they also have, like, a massive foundry where they can make... Huge metal sculptures, and they have all sorts of welders, and it's an amazing place. Yeah. And it, they started doing a little bit of a public, um, you can go in there as a, a regular, you know, just I think Monday to Friday kind of schedule mm-hmm. and see some of their stuff and go into their warehouse basically.
1: And then the rom got the Dawn of Life gallery, which we were excited to see because when we were there a few years before, they hadn't made that gallery yet.
2: Yeah, so it's very good. We loved around it.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it right. helps. Dude, the weather was perfect when we were there <laughs>
0: yes we had a mild. we so far have had a mild winter yes and uh, i can i've been to things uh with a bit of a background in journalism where going somewhere and there's a lot to cover and you want to report back correctly and in timely fashion did you feel a lot of pressure when you go to these things and you think boy we can't miss something and we <laughs> we got to get the details you can't just like are people handing out flyers to help you out or how do you how do you get all of those details
2: yeah it's i Every year we do this, we think maybe we should cover less because it's sort of we do like a fire hose strategy of like every dinosaur thing we've learned pretty much that we're allowed to talk about. And the way we do it is at SVP the way they structure it is they'll have sessions that are two to three hours long. and then each presenter talks for 15 minutes, 15 to 20. there's supposed to be five minutes of Q&A to make a total of 20, but sometimes they talk for all 20 minutes. And then we just feverishly write notes. For those whole 20 minutes. And then we later go back and try to make sense of it. And then that way we can share it on our podcast. We're
1: also kind of tracking down people like, hey, do an interview. Can you do an interview with (laughs) us? And then just get as many interviews as possible that week.
2: That's true. Yeah. Especially if there's like a complicated thing and we don't know (laughs) if we can present on it properly or there's a lot of details we know that we want them to do just right, then yeah, an interview is a good way to do it.
0: So you guys have got more than four hundred episodes. You're passing your eighth anniversary right now on the show, and you've remarkably maintained a very consistent tone and style from beginning to end. And that's must be a, a real indication of the authenticity in terms of your presentation. It's been really, really well done. What I guess would you say has changed the most for you over these eight years of producing the show?
1: I think we've opened up more, mm-hmm. like. In the beginning, especially when we were still learning and there are a lot of technical terms we'd have to keep looking up to remember and we didn't know as much about paleontology, we were much more scripted and careful. Mm-hmm. And in the later years, as we've gotten more comfortable, we try to do more of the bantery kind of thing.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and we, we feel comfortable saying things that we don't have written down and fact-checked ten ways beforehand because we, we sort of know some of it by heart. Mm-hmm. Or most of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sure that there's been a tremendous amount of learning and familiarity that you've been oh, able yeah. to strengthen. And I think when you have a passion like this, finding a way to to engage with the content is an excellent way to embody the content. Or at least consume it in a, in a meaningful way that you, can, you feel some better results with. And obviously it shows up in your show. You should be very proud of what Thanks. you guys have done there, for sure.
1: Well, oh, I was going to say, it sounds like you also know a fair amount. I, I heard all those Little tidbits in your intro, uh, <laughs> you know, Homer's riddle, and things uh, like that.
0: <laughs> if anything, I would say so. I'll put it this way: in terms of like um, literature surveys, like going over what's been published, I can read that. I could tell you what I read. But uh, when it comes with the fascinating things that people do in terms of looking at an old rock and then deciding that um, a dinosaur acted and behaved and ate and did this, interpreting bones, that stuff is like wizardry. I cannot imagine how they <laughs> how they take these rotten crushed up hunks of, of rock and, uh, and and create an entire ecosystem it's that part is magic. I can tell you what they said about it but in terms of how they how they made that happen I haven't the first idea. It's absolutely fascinating for sure. yeah I agreed <laughs> so, so if you had free advice for someone starting a fun podcast on a, or a passion project, what would you suggest?
1: Well make sure it is something you're passionate about yeah. that's number one
2: because you're going to talk about it a lot and research it a lot and yep. then you're going to have to edit what you said. <laughs> so
1: Yep, yeah. And then if you want to keep working on it for any long amount of time.
0: Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Without it becoming yes, a and-
1: yeah. But don't I mean also don't don't be afraid to just go for it.
2: And what would you caution against? Oh, that's a good question. I guess one is sort of biting off more than you can chew because mm-hmm. some people try to do as much as like a daily podcast and that's is too much. Mm-hmm. You got to figure out how much time you have to dedicate to it and what you can reasonably sustain. If that's once a month, if it's once every two weeks, if it's once a week, any of that is fine. But yeah, it's best to be consistent and sort of pick a, a pacing that you can stick stick to.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I respect that. That's a good one. So if you had expensive advice that someone had to pay a lot of money to hear, what would that be?
1: <laughs> uh. <laughs> Are you going to pay us? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't don't know. (laughs) Expensive advice. Um, Counts as expensive advice, but collaboration is a big part of podcasting. And we're lucky that podcasting is an industry where people really do want to work together Mm -hmm. and build each other up. So, yeah, don't be afraid to reach out.
0: Yeah, that's true. And in terms of reaching out, you guys have had uh, plenty of great guests on your show, including paleontologists, Um, which I know when I got a couple on, I was like very, very excited. It's a wonderful opportunity. You feel awesome about it. Obviously, with a bit of media training and and a bit of journalism on my background, there's um, a part of the profession where you're openly aware that you're in a privileged position to gain access where a common citizen maybe doesn't always have a chance to go. And so when you mediate something also, you have to try, uh, when you're amplifying it, you want it to be true. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) you feel those responsibilities, and I'm sure you felt those things uh, throughout your work as well. And so the question is, when when an interview is has gone its best, what what sort of preparations led into those great results?
1: Let's see. Um, well, we do research. Whether that's if we're going to talk about a specific paper, we read that paper or a book, or maybe it's somebody who's got a large body of work. We make sure that we're you know we know enough about it that we can ask some deeper questions. And a lot of it it comes down to active listening, though, while you're in the middle of it, because sometimes they'll say something, like a throwaway comment, and you pick up on that, and it leads to a really great story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that might be how we ended up with several conversations on our show now about uh, horses.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, excavate fossils. It's kind of amazing. Like, some of these excavation stories are just incredible.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they are in parks and places where you can't get vehicles in, so people have to use horses. And that's always interesting how you do like 20th or even 19th century fossil excavations. <laughs> but in present times,
0: sometimes when you get into the pits, I imagine you, if you've got any knowledge on like how the Egyptians moved rock, that that would come in <laughs> super handy when, uh, when you got to go yeah. low tech out in the middle of the Badlands. Fascinating. Yeah, and yeah the horses don't hurt, <laughs> they're good to have. <laughs> So here's, here's a, a sort of a mea culpa in terms of preparation. I have a confession and an apology that I owe you guys. To begin with, to my detriment or to my own disadvantage, I don't know any Garrett's. And through some coincidence of fate or, or I just haven't met any and, and therefore I'm horrifically unfamiliar with spelling consistently or correctly your name. And so <laughs> in all the correspondence <laughs> leading up to this, I think I spelled it differently every time. And I might have even called mm-hmm. you Gavin once. <laughs> <laughs> and... If I've learned anything from from being like a small town, low circulation publication, you can get away with a lot of errors. But if you spell somebody's name wrong, Scott Dellahurst is not Scott Della Hunt, and you got to get that right. So uh, that's a heinous taboo and one I committed multiple times against you to my horror, and I am
2: sorry. <laughs> well, I think Sabrina was doing most of the writing, so I don't even. Know what that
0: means. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I owe her. Uh, thank you. But uh, it goes to show, mispronunciation is challenging when especially working with um some of the language that comes out with the dinosaur names but then again uh the provincial names of places in south america in mongolia (laughs) in china um how do you wrap your head around (laughs) convincingly if whether correct or not say it with confidence getting some of these words out of your mouth in terms of the strange genus names and species names and types of bones and muscle attachments when you're when you're when you're presenting on the podcast.
2: Yeah, Garrett's
1: that... better at it than me. <laughs>
2: Sabrina likes to just say it as fast as possible. Well,
1: no, we we both look into the language because sometimes it's well. So, the best case is the author has written a pronunciation guide. They in sometimes the do that, yeah. yeah. But sometimes they don't, and you but you know it's a specific. It's based on a specific language, and you can kind of figure it out from that, even though it's been kind of Latinized or to be like greek sounding
2: what we the first starting point is always if there's a if it's a like a a (laughs) dinosaur that's been around for a while we'll just go with whatever everybody says Mm -hmm. no matter how incorrect it may have become technically um so we've got a book by tom holtz it's called like dinosaur's most complete encyclopedia something like that complete dinosaur it doesn't have even though it's called it's super complete it's from like 2007 so it doesn't have the newer discoveries it's, in it but
1: very complete up until 2007 or something. yes
2: so when we find a dinosaur you go to like wikipedia you see when was this dinosaur named and if it was before 2007 i mean i'll break out that book because he did a pronunciation for pretty okay. much every dinosaur that had been named to that point so that's really useful mm-hmm. and then sometimes you can use that you can kind of combine what's in there with whatever the new thing is and piece together how to pronounce it but otherwise it's like sabrina said it's a combination of how Latin do you want to make it sound versus how, like, the original language do you want to make it sound? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of a case-by-case thing. I don't know. Usually I go with closer to the the name in whatever language it's in, just because, I don't know. I think that makes it more interesting.
1: (laughs) Might have been what the authors were going for.
2: Yeah, and if you pronounce it, if you try to, like, phonetically say it in English or in Latin, sometimes it doesn't really make any sense and it's Mm -hmm. a super weird word compared with if you start in the in the original language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's basically the strategy. It takes a while. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and plus, like if you ask a guy from Ireland or a guy from Hong Kong, or you ask a guy or a lady from, you know, uh, Italy <laughs> or Boston mm-hmm. and New York, like everybody's going to have a little, it's the same word. They just, they are going to say it a little different, yes. whether that's right or wrong has really got to do with how you learn to speak. Really, <laughs> So yeah, it's tough, but, uh, I'm but sure we- people fight about it all the time.
2: We've talked to some of the people that name these dinosaurs too, and we're like, "How do you say?" It? And a lot of times they're like, "I don't know. It's it's a written word. It's not yeah. really. <laughs> everyone's gonna say it differently, and that's fine." You nailed that's how it. a lot of them feel.
0: You nailed it. Like just saying, "Ornithischian." I've read that. Mm-hmm. I don't know a hundred times. And then when you go come on a show and you got to say that thing out loud, like, "Man, that's," <laughs> it's a tongue yeah. twister. It's tough when you get to that that middle s c h and people. Yeah. Mm. But oh well. You guys do it well. Like I said, you do it with confidence and I think people just are happy with that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: nice. Thank you. I think that's one we switched to. I think we used to say Ornithischian and we switched to Ornithischian at some point. I don't depends. know why. Yeah.
1: Or there was one dinosaur when we went to Australia. Uh, we used to say Austral... how did you say it? I can't remember. Oh, the Australovenator. Yeah. yes. I the
2: Australovenator.
1: <laughs> and now I can't. I have trouble saying it, even though that's how I started You're saying
2: You're always it saying it Australo-Venador.
1: Because when we were in Australia, that's how everyone was saying it to me.
2: <laughs> yeah, the British one is Venador versus in the U.S. we say Venator.
0: <laughs> so you guys have a terrific show. If listeners wanted to, to check it out, uh, how could they find it? How can they support it? What uh, what can they expect?
2: Yeah, so it's the show is I Know Dino, which is I-K-N-O-W with D-I-N-O. So it's sort of a pun, like. I know dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's a pun, but whatever. Um, and then we have a Patreon. It's also I know Dido, where we have a Discord server, and we what all do we do there? We have an ad-free version of the show, and yeah. we do bonus content, and sometimes we do like live streams and things like that.
1: Yes, and then if you search dinosaur podcast, like mentioned at the beginning of the show, then uh, we should pop up on any of the podcast players. Mm-hmm.
0: They should pop up number one. <laughs> Hopefully. I bet you, you do. Alright, so this show is all built on the premise that we're here to talk about Michael Crichton's nineteen ninety novel Jurassic Park, but also not that too. We seem to have touched on not that too very well. So um <laughs> So here's a good story. Like When a couple gets married, you and your spouse uh, have to bring all of your belongings under a common roof. And you have to like merge your CD collection and your DVD collection if you're of a certain age. Some people used to have to do that. And of course, uh, we had two copies of Green Day's Dookie album. And I think my wife and I had two copies of Oasis' What's the Story Morning Glory. And uh, that might have been it. I don't know that we had a lot of other things in common. But, uh, and certainly not dinosaurs. But the question I'm getting at is how many copies of Jurassic Park did you discover you owned by the time you... Uh, came to live under the same roof
2: oh man i don't even know if i had one. Oh no
1: <laughs> yeah it's uh let's see because the dinosaur movies i had as a kid they were vhs
2: oh if you, yeah if you're talking on movie on like film we had several because mm-hmm. i i bought it every time yeah it was like vhs then i got it when i was on dvd then i got it on blu-ray and then right now we have the 4k blu-ray one
1: well i think we yeah we just have the 4k now but when we first started Living together,
2: I probably had it on DVD. I'm guessing. Okay, that might might and be it, it. Might
1: have been, might have been just you with, the, yeah. Might and I might have had, book.
2: I probably had the, the ebook version of Jurassic <laughs> Park by that point.
1: <laughs> we definitely had multiple copies of the book. I think at least two, probably.
2: Yes, I know we. I found a really ratty paperback edition of Jurassic Park at one point.
1: Yeah, and I was like, I oh, think,
2: where was this hiding?
1: I think we. But once we found the duplicates, it's just like, which one's the nicer one? That's yeah. what we'll, we'll keep.
0: <laughs> well, it makes sense. They're, they're they're all good keepsakes, every one of them. <laughs> so what came first? Did you guys see the, I guess you might have different experiences, but did you see the movie first? Did you read the book first? Or how did you come into, uh, how did Jurassic Park enter your lives?
2: I definitely saw the movie first mm-hmm. by a long time. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know when I first read the book, but it was probably like...
1: Years after?
2: Yeah. At least fifteen years after it came out, I think.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah! I actually don't remember when I first read the book. I I saw the movie first, and we must have rented it or something because we we're watching it at home. And I hid in the kitchen during the kitchen scene.
2: <laughs> that's not the right place to hide. <laughs> yeah, that's where but the raptors
1: kitchen. are. <laughs> no, I know, but it was it was far away from the TV.
0: <laughs> oh, fair I get my first uh, memory of something of that nature was um, my parents had rented. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and at the final scene when the when the spoiler alert demons exit the Ark and start melting everybody's faces I remember I jumped right around but we had like um, a glass sliding door at the back of the room and so the reflection of uh, that Nazi's face coming to, turning into a skull was still right there <laughs> um, but yeah that so yeah we can all relate to the, the first film that really um, made us scared to go to sleep <laughs> Yeah. And Jurassic Park's a good one. It's good for that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a solid horror movie, I yeah. think.
0: It's got moments that are too intense for somebody that's like less than 10. It's uh,
2: <laughs> for sure. That's the thing. Yeah, because it's dinosaurs. People are like, yeah, it's dinosaurs. This is for kids. It's a kid's Kids love movie. dinosaurs.
1: <laughs> there are some nice dinosaur scenes.
2: Yeah, then there's like a, a severed hand on a shoulder. And it's like, that's, that's not for kids.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So, the book is tremendously rereadable. I think a lot of people enjoy it uh, on multiple uh, viewings. When you said you read it so much later after you'd seen the movie, were you surprised what was in the novel when you, when you finally got there?
2: A rereading I did like five or six years ago. I was surprised because I had seen the full Jurassic Park 1, 2, 3, maybe even Jurassic World by that point, and how much of the stuff in Jurassic Park, the novel, was left out of the first movie, but then just sort of got like sneakily put into later movies. Like they've, Mm -hmm. at this point, it seems like they've drained it for all it's worth over all the movies. (laughs) But yeah, there are so many details in the book that go so far beyond the first movie that, yeah, it's really cool.
0: It's astonishing that there's almost more from the first novel in the second movie than there is (laughs) from the second novel in the second movie.
2: yeah <laughs>
0: in a, it would be an interesting uh content analysis to to discover exactly what the quali- uh the, the percentages are and how much of it is just off the top of somebody's head because that was <laughs> unrelated in so many ways
2: yeah that's what? true yeah even the the second book like dodgson comes back mm-hmm. and that doesn't happen until the very most recent the sixth jurassic park series movie mm-hmm. is when <laughs> so the oh, yeah
0: you're right, they had a totally viable villain right there, already designed mm-hmm. and created and ready to go. There was a bad guy, and, uh, yeah, they, they went a totally different way for whatever reason. I guess it was because Hammond was yeah. still alive? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they made a lot of choices that changed
2: things. They didn't really have bad villain humans in movies 2 through 5. It was just, like, dinosaurs. Well, I guess you had, yeah, like, Lockhart and yeah. stuff a little bit, but it was mostly the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs were, like, the villains, sort of.
0: Well, there's always somebody that had like the, the most foolish impression of what they should be doing with the dinosaur. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, in the second movie, you had InGen and all that, but it never really felt like that was the threat. Like you know, it was like the dinosaurs are the threat, and Mm -hmm. then there's these bad people that are also being attacked by dinosaurs.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they were like easily created to to be very specifically, basically, just pirates that were pillaging the land. They were nothing else. And. uh, um, it was like Mad Max, except for with dinosaurs. <laughs> they just swoop in, and the one guy in a nice suit leading the way. It was uh, an interesting proposition what they did there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I remember in, the, in some of the pre-show prep, I was asking, what are some of the standout moments from the novel that you remember? Gary, you mentioned that uh, the scene trapped behind the waterfall and the T-Rex swimming through the lagoon were two of the moments that, uh, that really stuck out in, in the book. What were, were the parts of that that really were in your favor? Why did you like those parts?
2: I think... Well, the swimming thing probably stuck with me even when I was younger because I've always been afraid of swimming and mostly that there's going to be some kind of creature in the water with me that I can't identify that's going to eat me. So Mm -hmm. like it could be a shark. It could be whatever. I don't know. A T-Rex. Yeah, exactly. In this case, a T-Rex. So if there's ever a situation where people are like, "There's some big monster in the water." I'm like, "Oh yeah, that that just yeah is instantly scary to me." And the idea, I think, Jurassic Park was certainly the first time I'd ever seen the thought that a T-Rex could be a capable swimmer. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because now there've been like some scientific studies on it, things, yeah. and even in prehistoric clinic the recent Apple so documentary, scene, yeah. they have a whole thing on T-Rex swimming, and it's yeah, it, one of the many ways that Jurassic Park was pretty ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. So. That was cool. Yeah, Crichton also terrifying.
0: Crichton did some interesting things in terms of what are some interesting behaviors people haven't seen before, and that's a good one. That's a really good one that he came up with. Um, And I think too, the idea that uh, it wouldn't just be swimming, but that it would be like actively preying upon somebody, is very different. (laughs) Like I can see somebody swimming around, but I don't see a lion, you know, attacking things in the water necessarily. Yeah, the waterfall. So. Looking back as an adult, an electric waterfall that turns off when the power goes out. how Does, does that pass the sniff test anymore? <laughs> Probably not. I'll, I'll challenge you this. Next time you read it, keep in mind there's this strange door behind the waterfall that locks Tim and Lex away from Grant see if you can make any sense of what kind of door this would be, why it's there, why it would be locked, why it would be unopenable, why there would be no light switches, and why it would suddenly become ajar when the power goes out. (laughs) Bigger
1: questions. Those are bigger
0: questions. It's an interesting door. Uh, Next time you go through there, check that one out. Uh, And you also mentioned that, yeah, obviously the compies being venomous and biting people in the book was consequential. It had a lot of... It was kind of our introduction to dinosaurs at the beginning of the book. It was um, an introduction to the to the gravity and the um, the, the horror that, that uh, even small dinosaurs could present to people. And it made them venomous too, which is really interesting. Um, what are your impressions of the copies, especially in the first novel and, and our, our first peek at what these animals are like?
2: I mean, I think since I had already seen the movie by that point, it was just like another, these aren't to be messed with. You know, they may yeah. be small but they are ferocious that the venom addition to it just made it extra intense
1: and the fact that they are in groups
2: yeah hmm I liked the the connection to the science right from the start there where it was like we have this creature that's you know wreaking a little bit of havoc and they're trying to figure out what it is but also trying not to panic people that was I like that it's interesting
0: yeah, and I like uh, we were talking before about interesting behaviors. I like that uh, the Dilophysol was venomous. I think that was really interesting. Uh, imagination that we're, were employed by that. He might have got a tip. I think on on that. I'm not sure where from, but he might have been tipped off. Somebody might have given them that weak jaw hypothesis and suggested, well, this is why it would be venomous instead of uh, instead of a great like, I don't know attacker. <laughs> And, yeah. But then adapting that to to spit forty feet was really cool. I think that was an interesting piece of behavior that he, he came up with, and um, and then Spielberg's gills were an interesting addition, <laughs> which made it fun. Mm-hmm. If, if if not only like it's still today, everybody's put gills on them, or else you don't know what kind of dinosaur it is. Yeah. <laughs> Sabrina, you were telling me about the scenes from the movie that uh, were really influential on your on your watching and things like that, things that stuck in. And of course, you had the kitchen scene uh, that was very scary. <laughs> did you yep. really shy away from watching it the very first time? Like, did you know what happened or did you keep an eye on it? Oh, or?
1: No, no, I didn't know. I wasn't expecting that at all. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I was watching with my cousin and my sister and all of a sudden, it's this intense scene that's happening and we all kind of cower in a corner or ran away
2: (laughs) you (laughs) just wait for it to be over then you come back once the scene's over
1: yeah once you know it's safe (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. yeah that's that was a really 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 memorable part yeah i remember as a kid um that the whole concept of deus ex machina where something swoops in and saves you at the last second that's Mm -hmm. kind of like this contrived thing that happens in every action adventure movie now through some dumb luck somebody gets spared uh being crushed or killed or destroyed or whatever but uh, i remember that scene where where lex is tugging down the the lid on the on the uh stainless steel uh shelving and trying to protect Mm -hmm. herself and just the reflection of the raptor coming at her and i thought Mm -hmm. this is it like i'm gonna watch a little girl get eaten (laughs) my first view i know for sure she's toast there's nothing gonna save her i remember thinking this is it uh I'm prepared for her to die, I guess. I've, and, uh, and yeah, and then, but it wasn't a cheat. Like, it was a, a misdirect by the director, but Spielberg was so clever in that. But uh, yeah, I remember that was such a, an important part. I don't know. It, that is one of those moments that makes it a special movie as opposed to just another action adventure. That that wasn't a cheat. It wasn't somebody swooping in to save the day. It was actually just a, a misdirect, which I thought was really yeah. cool and made it worthwhile. That was cool. Yeah, agreed. Uh, have you guys seen maybe recently, The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining.
2: Yeah. I've seen it not super recently, but maybe 10 years ago.
0: So like whatever the director so. version of plagiarism is, I think it's called making an homage. <laughs> but there's a scene where um, the little boy in The Shining is running from Jack in The Shining and he escapes into a stainless steel little cupboard where he's trying to hide, just like in the in the Jurassic Park kitchen. And then Jack is injured, so he's hobbling, and so he's almost bent over. He almost looks just like the raptor walking around. And I think he's got like something tied around his leg, like he's hobbling. And then they lock him in a pantry to escape. It's yeah, it's incredible, and it's just a small little part. It's not really really obvious, but like I think Spielberg was like, oh yeah, I'll pay homage to Stanley Kubrick and like one of those most fascinating scenes turns out to be one that he borrowed which is
1: Mm. takes a little magic
0: away from me but uh, it's the the shining is pretty intense (laughs) in its own right so and then you were also mentioning how you really loved the Gallimimus stampede that the depiction was was agile it was energetic it was totally different from what most people were going to be seeing in a dinosaur film at that time uh, was that as trend setting as as, uh, I guess it would have been it was in all the commercials too like that was hey dinosaurs look new and exciting now
1: yeah
2: yeah Yeah, i think so it would a lot of people cite jurassic park as like the first depiction of dinosaurs being quick and being not lumbering oafs which is smart we have since learned that there were earlier depictions of that Mm -hmm. but none of them were nearly as popular as jurassic park was so it certainly changed the public perception of dinosaurs from being big oafish maybe even having to stay in lagoons or something to Mm -hmm. support their body weight because they're just like big whale Creatures, uh, yeah, into these like fast-moving pursuit Mm -hmm. animals, and yeah, that scene is definitely the prototypical T. Rex chasing the Gallimimus, and they're all running and flocking, sort of. They're all very bird-like. Yeah, very ostrichy. It's great.
0: Yeah, and I think it's one of the few moments where a herbivore gets to be dangerous in a Mm -hmm. in a Mm -hmm. innocent enough way, but they become like life-threatening by (laughs) and by by virtue Mm -hmm. of a. Uh, escaping into in the direct... They're flocking this way. Um, mm-hmm. That Gallimimus scene, I, I look back on it because I've been looking at all of this stuff so much more closely than somebody should, I think. And uh, that Gallimimus <laughs> is like a sneaky, important Alan Grant scene. He's um, strengthening his relationship with the kids in general and then these two kids in particular. And he's... Um, that, like, he's really trying to protect them, which becomes an important stepping stone in his his uh, transformation as a guy that doesn't want kids at all to somebody who doesn't mind kids at the end. And I think um, there's at the beginning of the film, we'll all recall that he's making these assertions that are being laughed at, that dinosaurs are very much like birds. And everybody thinks that he's a fool for, for saying that a velociraptor might be like a six-foot turkey. And um, then, in this scene, he makes two bird observations. Fun trivia question, can you remember what the two of the observations on birds are?
2: I guess one is the flocking.
0: Yeah, just like a flock of birds evading a predator.
2: What's the, the tri- other one? The
0: Tyrannosaur is eating, and he says, I bet you'll mm. never look at birds the same way again.
2: <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> you remember so now and yeah. <laughs> uh, but he goes so this is him proving it and so the the example of a, a bona fide dinosaur demonstrates his theories are correct and it makes him uh, it shows him to be a, a superior scientist than he started off as it vindicates his assertions as a, a, a academic it's bringing him uh, closer to the children and making him a better, better well-rounded character it's a sneaky alan grant scene and it doesn't look like it at all because mm. it's a tyrannosaur yeah. <laughs> stepping on and eating a gallimimus in the background that's true <laughs> but it's another that's part a good of point it. what makes that movie so much more special than all of the sequels everything else is that there were so many layers it was so much more tight it was well let's not even compare it It is tight, and it is memorable for all of these reasons. Each scene has a lot of stuff going on in it. And, um, yeah, I think it deserves the credit it gets, and maybe the others deserve some of the infamy they get. (laughs) (laughs) What else? The kitchen scene. One of the neat parts that are in the novel, and maybe you'll remember this. You don't have to because it's kind of specific. But uh, through the whole adventure from falling out of the land cruiser, climbing through a moat, I think going over a fence... Falling, or climbing up a tree to avoid the stampede, spending the night in a sauropod maintenance shed, hopping in the river, floating down that, falling over the waterfall. All of this time, Tim has been carrying with him the night vision goggles, and when he gets <laughs> to the kitchen, he puts these on, and that entire raptor scene in the kitchen in the novel is done in pitch black with him wearing the night vision goggles, and Lex is blind through the whole thing. And that is another one of those moments where that the book gets so crazy. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I wouldn't change anything that happened in that scene in the movie because it turned out so well. But like, can you imagine if it had been in night vision and it was pitch black and all of that? It's that's so nice. <laughs> and I was just looking. Intense. I was just looking at the the character ages and the actor ages portraying the characters. And Tim, little Tim, who plays the younger child, is actually a year younger than in 1992. Joseph Mazzella would have been a year younger. I think ten years old. Uh, than Tim who is 11 in the novel. So he's actually younger than the older kid. Can you imagine Lex have being like actually a seven-year-old depicted in the, like <laughs> no, unbelievable, no. that kitchen scene would have been insane having a, somebody out of like E.T. running around.
1: <laughs> just yeah, unbelievable.
2: Yeah. Well, I do remember in one of the things that stood out the most to me was one of the times rereading Jurassic Park was that Lex went from being just maybe the most annoying character of the book to being like one of the coolest characters in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I was glad they made that change mm-hmm. and definitely making her older made that more possible that she could be more of a productive member of the group than basically just screaming constantly, alerting dinosaurs to where they are, and, you know. Right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I thought that she didn't play much of a role other than that whiny thing, but like at the, I know through the beginning of the tour and through leading up to the Tyrannosaur attack on the Land Cruisers, a lot of that story is told through the perspective of Tim and then especially after he falls out of the tree after they spend the night at the in the maintenance shed and she starts feeding the Triceratops through the, the bars a lot of it is from her perspective and I think that's why it feels like she's so whiny through the whole thing. I think it's told through her eyes. and uh, Not obviously and not specifically but tim is he he hardly says a word through that that whole adventure which is which is insane because he had so much to say so much perspective to begin with and then so much of it becomes through lex's perspective at the end and it surprised me what you know going through it closely that uh, she really dominates in a lot of ways probably to everyone's uh rem- remembers it for the worst because are <laughs> just whining and complaining and and saying the wrong thing and like she always has to to cough at the wrong time? Like, is that really a, a plot point here? But it is. And uh, yeah, Crichton, that's his choice, and that's what he did.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> what else about the novel or the movie, before we move on, stands out to you as something that really impressed you with how it went? Is there anything that we we haven't talked about that you think, boy, we should we should mention this before we move on?
2: I think one thing we talk about with the movie a lot is in the first movie you don't see the dinosaurs. They have very little screen time, but you always feel their presence. So it feels like the dinosaurs are in the entire movie. But if you actually added up all the scenes and like the number of minutes they're on the screen, it's very low. low,
1: Like 11 minutes or something? I can't remember exactly.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's, I think the the cinematography and the writing and just like a lot of the (laughs) movie-ness of the first movie was so well done that I think it stands on its own really well just as a piece of film and cinema history, which I think is one of the reasons that it's so popular, because not only was it this huge, important CGI feat, they had that you know amazing animatronic T-Rex puppet, all this really cool technology, and they were bringing a bunch of science to modern viewers, but it was also just a really well done movie with a good arc and just a compelling story. So. I feel like Jurassic Park is always going to be a super important piece of cinematic history mm-hmm. just on its own. And, yeah, it's nice that dinosaurs are in it. For <laughs> <laughs> it. Sure.
0: And I think adding to that uh, another element that really brings those dinosaurs and the, the ominous nature of them at all times throughout the film is the the soundtrack the the original score that goes mm-hmm. with it you always like at the beginning you don't you only see the eyeball of the the big one in uh, in maldoon's captive captivity but uh the whole thing is just full of dread like everybody's in danger and you don't see anything it's really really incredible for sure so one of the things I wanted to touch on, you guys do such a terrific job in your show covering Dinosaur News, the place to go if, you, if anybody were interested in, like, what is the latest? It's the... Like, where else are you going to turn, right? Tom Holtz's Twitter feed? You could. <laughs> <laughs> but but you could. your show really explains it very well. It covers the cool stuff. And uh, and you give enough conversation context around it that it, it makes it really accessible. And so that's, that's nice. not an easy task, and I think it's one you guys do really well. But, um, Thank you. In the latest news... Uh, what in the last year do you think has really impressed you the most about uh, where things are going? And you don't have to tease like the secret stuff from SVP, but you could. Uh, <laughs> but like, what do you what, what happened in the last year that really makes you excited for for the future of paleontology?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question to ask because we just did our best of 2022, so it's all still front of mind. Mm. Um, one of the things I think. Some of the really new dinosaur discoveries themselves are really exciting. And people don't realize it, but there is a new dinosaur discovered almost every week. So it's like nonstop, more so than any time in history are there, more just like nonstop new dinosaurs. It's not like we found T. rex and Triceratops, and then we're just sort of <laughs> done with the dinosaur discoveries. Like, there's just so much all the time. Mm-hmm. And so we already mentioned Zool and Borealopelta which are two really cool ankylosaurs that I love. Those were discovered a few years ago. But just over a year ago, there's this one described called Stegouros. Mm. And that's another one where it's like, how do you pronounce this thing? Because it's Mm S-T-E-G-O-U-R-O-S. So, yeah, it's like, how do you combine that O and U? Anyway, Stegouros is sort of the Latin version. (laughs) That's what I went with. But it's got this crazy tail, which is rather than being like, a typical ankylosaur tail with two big knobs on it. It's got a series of triangular spikes sticking out of the side of it, maybe about a dozen of them in total, and that made up almost a third of the length of the body of this animal. So it's just this crazy tail is found in way down south in Chile, almost like basically would have been connected to Antarctica back then. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just so cool. So anyway, that's one of my favorite discoveries of recent Paleontology.
1: I think there's a lot of really cool stuff happening with it. This happens every year, just as we as paleontology gets more and more advanced and more people are joining. You see new techniques, new technologies and kind of going back at fossils in collections and looking at them with fresh eyes. And finding out, like, oh, you know, something we thought was just bone, that might actually be some soft tissue, for example. (laughs) So there's like, there's a lot of papers that have been coming out lately about different soft tissue things, whether it's the skin or the intestines, or uh, my favorite, or gut contents. So it's, yeah, it's really cool hearing these new details and how we can apply them going forward to either new fossils found or fossils that are already stored somewhere.
0: Mm hmm. Really cool stuff. Yes, I was just seeing something about, um, Gut contents, maybe in an ankylosaur that had, uh, it may have been eating bark up in the colder regions uh, because that was the food source available. And uh, I think I was doing mm-hmm. that. But uh, yeah, all kinds of neat stuff. Yeah. And when you get like the, the gut contents, you get more of the behavior, more of the, the personality that uh, a femur
2: may not give you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think our favorites, aside from new cool dinosaurs, are the gut contents that tell you what they ate. And then the paleopathologies, which are basically the injuries that are preserved on the bone. Some mm. of
1: those are gnarly.
2: Because they, they can also tell you so much about them. Like, oh, it had this type of infection or it was maybe pregnant or it, you know, broke its back in this way and whether or not it healed after the fact mm-hmm. and all these sorts of or, yeah, really interesting Or things. something,
1: the craziest ones are like some crazy fracture or break and then it's a this- but they healed, and it lived for at least six months after it healed. So <laughs> yeah. they just had to walk around with this terrible injury.
0: Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember um, I went to college and lost the the rhythm of staying up to date <laughs> with, uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, with dinosaur news and things like that. And uh, it wasn't until my son was born in 2012, and then he got a dinosaur train within five years of that or something like that and so there is this opportunity to get back in to see what was going on in terms of dinosaurs and if you were to say not pay attention from you know, 1999 to 2017, it turned out there was a lot of interesting things that happened in that time. (laughs) And, uh, you know, dinosaurs got very feathery. The therizinosaurs and dinochirids got figured out. They weren't just like these wicked arms reaching out of the darkness. They found (laughs) Scotty the T-Rex and he went on display and there was, uh, you know, a mountain of Tyrannosaurus studies. Brontosaurus came back. Uh, there was a lot of interesting things that happened in that time period. But uh, one of the things that surprised me the most was that there was a whole new family of dinosaurs that I had never heard of at the time. And that was the, an anti And there was this whole new branch of species that were there that didn't exist before. And that surprised me. And I thought that is, I never thought they would have found more of something completely strange or different or new. And in its relationship phylogenetically to Late Cretaceous theropods, whether it's closely or not, I don't know. Uh, or, or who knows. <laughs> and how they play a role or where they play a role in terms of, of the bird lineages and stuff like that, it's, it's still a mystery. But this year we got something similar to that. And it, it was astonishing because the, the early Jurassic and the late Triassic Ornithischian line was so strange and so unusual. Were you guys as excited maybe as me to find out that the psilosaurian hypothesis that this may be where the, the early ornithischians came from? How, did that strike <laughs> yeah, you as like, important?
2: It. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. When uh, Baron et al. talked about maybe the it's ornithoscelida and we should be lumping dinosaurs in a totally different way than ornithischians and saurischians. I loved that too. Because, yeah, there's that huge question basically. We think dinosaurs evolved 240 to 250 million years ago. And then we know ornithischians were around 200 million years ago. But that's a gap in history almost as long as from us (laughs) back to when dinosaurs were still around, where we don't know, like, where were the ornithischians? So, yeah, I'm a fan of that hypothesis. I don't really care too much which one's right. Like, I liked the ornithoscolyda answer. I also liked the Silosaurid answer. The ornithoscolyda one immediately got quite a bit of pushback. Whereas the Silosaurid paper was published quite a few months ago now, and nobody really has been too upset about it. And a lot of other people have sort of referenced it. Even the original Silosaurid papers, sort of from, like, I think the 70s, when they were really fragmentary skeletons, people were talking about, like, is this an Ornithischian? Is it something else? So, yeah, I think it it seems like it might hold up, which would be very nice, because... Mm -hmm. The Triassic is such a weird time frame, and figuring out what was going on then is mm-hmm. always fascinating.
0: And it comes with, a, I think, just because there's already a family of psilosauridae out there, it comes with a prepackaged about 10 dinosaurs that comes with it, so that's kind of fun if you, if you mm-hmm. believe they're dinosaurs now. And I haven't had a lot of time to opine or think about what it means. Like, as we were saying before, we don't know quite how the in, in, antiornithines and things like that quite connect with all the bird lineages yet. There, people seem to have mapped them out pretty clearly, but there's still that, where is the first bird, <laughs> isn't, mm-hmm. isn't agreed upon necessarily, and that's fine. But thinking back then, so the, the, the psilosaurids were distinctly not the theropods, they were not the psorician. They had the wrong hips, and they had the wrong hips to be necessarily dinosaurs as well, theoretically or or, or in, interpretively, anyhow. But if they do become that, what it means is we always picture these ornithischians as being like the, the basal, underived, boring, simple little things. Where if they come from the ceratopsian line and then derive so much that they have distinct hips, all of a sudden they become much more derived than the ceratopsians suddenly, and this whole perspective changes. If that's true, or if that plays out, but um an interesting little bit of that most mysterious little part of the, uh, the early Jurassic. And then, yeah, what could have possibly been that made those little, you know, shrinky dinks turn into st- <laughs> stegosaurs and kylosaurus, some of the, the biggest <laughs> plant eaters we know of the time in the Jurassic and, um, uh, just fascinating stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It is. That's a fun mystery to wonder about the Triassic in general. It's like the, the farther back you go in history, the worse the fossil record gets. So we went to this place called Crystal Palace Park in uh in London and they have these giant sculptures of different prehistoric creatures and they have dinosaurs, but it was made in Victorian times and their dinosaurs are just like giant iguanas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which are way off cuz they're basically just on teeth and some other little tiny bones, but they had stuff from 10,000, you know, 20,000 years ago that were like Irish elk and things and those are perfect you look at it and it's like that's exactly how we would depict it now because they had a full skeleton to go from mm-hmm. so yeah that triassic stuff it takes so long to find enough bone to actually know what's going on back then and yeah but it we're, we're slowly filling in the pieces mm-hmm. it's going to take a while though it's going to keep changing for, for i don't know probably decades before we really get a, a good understanding of what was going on with those early dinosaurs
0: mm-hmm well we're we're flat out of time, but I will say this. I will keep tuning in because I want to know what's next when you guys report on it, because that's where you hear about it. And um Thanks. Yeah, keep up all the good work. It's a great show. Thank you for for coming on and being a guest. Uh I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah.
0: So thank you very, very much to my special guests, Garrett and Sabrina, for my to I know they got the number one dinosaur podcast in the whole world in the English language, as far as I know. And and they came on this show today, so that's just incredible. And if you want more dinosaur news more often, and for people who know their stuff about, as well as any mediator out there about how to talk about dinosaurs for us (laughs) to hear, uh, check out their show. All right, this week's text is Control, spanning from pages 228 to 233. In a synopsis, John Arnold and Henry Wu search the computer system to figure out what Dennis Nedry has done to the operating systems at Jurassic Park. They discover White Rabbit Object, a command disguised as an object that was Nedry's trap door that links the security and perimeter systems and then turns them off, giving him complete access to every place in the park. Characters Donald Gennaro. Gennaro sits with Hammond in a deserted cafeteria on page 228. Gennaro watches Hammond, quote, deliberately eating, and it gives him a chill. Hammond's lack of emotional response to his grandkids being missing in the park discomforts him to a point that he feels he has to specifically address the subject to make sure that Hammond is entirely clear that, Yo, your grandkids aren't okay. They are missing, and they are very likely injured and are vulnerable to being lethally attacked by dinosaurs. Your dinosaurs. Hammond responds by deferring responsibility with a tone like, Let's not overreact. This is no big deal. Which is horrifically dismissive of the value of human life and the welfare of his own grandkids. Gennaro, though, concedes to Hammond by responding, Whatever you say, sir, on 228. Even though he's already admitted to himself while out in the park with Muldoon, he's got to, quote, close the park and destroy it on 225. But he doesn't tell Hammond that yet. John Hammond. Hammond is spooning ice cream calmly into his mouth on 228. He was just eating ginger ice cream in his bungalow with Dr. Wu, admitting it was an old man's vice, and here he is at the cafeteria now eating more ice cream. Hammond deflects the subject of concern for his own grandkids, quote, I am sure we'll find them. I keep telling everyone this park is made for kids, on 228. He snaps at Gennaro not because he's upset his kids are missing, but because he's defending his... Character? He's ensuring Gennaro that he's not senile and is fully aware of the circumstances returns to his maudlin sentimentality. Let's not get carried away. And this is a little breakdown from the storm, and we're dealing with it. Dr. Henry Wu. He and John Arnold are working on restoring the computer systems from the damage Nedri has caused on 228. Wu aims to help Arnold explore all his options rather than scanning each line of code. There are far too many for that. That should only be used as a final resort. He recommends key checks, which gives Arnold a dose of hope and energy. That's an option that could help them solve the problem. Wu is an astute computer genius as well as a geneticist. Analyzing the code and uncovering what Nedry has done to the system is all performed by Wu, though you'd have, have expected it to have been Arnold if you'd been familiar with the film. Upon discovering that Nedry's command granted him universal access to anything in the park, Wu is reminded of that that peak in the temperature chart in the fertilization room and is compelled to go check his embryos on 232. John Arnold. Arnold is working the problem, but perhaps hasn't considered all his options yet. Wu's recommendation to check keystrokes is a revelation. It will reveal what Nedry has done and perhaps finally tell them how to undo it and restore control. Upon reviewing the keystrokes, it's obvious that Nedry had barely done anything he and Wu realize Nedri had obviously been scheming something this whole time on 229. Upon seeing the White Rabbit Object command, Arnold thinks that it's some kind of private joke on 230. They discover that Nedri's command granted him universal access to anything at the park, to their horror on 231, and Arnold runs an execution trace on the link to learn more. Dennis Nedri. Through some forensic accounting, Arnold and Wu realize that Nedri has been wasting his time at the console all day, although he'd appeared very busy. He had been putting on airs all day. The keystrokes show he'd been biding his time until he enacted his plan on 229. Nedry may have been reviewing the system to see what may have been changed before enacting his plan, and apparently was unaware that the safety systems cannot be shut down except by manually flipping switches on the main board on 230. In any case, Nedry disguised his trapdoor command as an object, which linked the security and perimeter systems, and then turned them off, giving him complete access to every place in the park on 231. Ellie Sattler. Ellie is in her hotel room, where she's changed out of her wet clothes, on pitch 232. She's expecting her mentor and colleague Alan Grant to be returning to her, but instead is quickly and earnestly caught up to speed on what happened out in the park. Most importantly, Muldoon recruits her to act as a nurse for Ian Malcolm. Muldoon calls Ellie Dr. Sattler, though it's inconclusive that she has yet to earn her PhD, and recall, most people who do call her doctor do not know her that well, and this includes Muldoon. She's likely compelled to help with the search in the park for Grant and the kids, rather than playing nurse, but Muldoon insists that Dr. Harding needs her support in caring for Malcolm, and she resists, suggesting that Muldoon calls a doctor, but there is no doctor to call. She is needed at Malcolm's bedside. As Muldoon gets more insistent, she notices that he's carrying a mysterious package under his arm, and he ends the conversation asking firmly and politely for her help to help Dr. Harding. Cretin tells us Sattler was, quote, not a woman disposed to unnecessary panic. And she knows that Grant is entirely capable of the wilderness on his own. But she worries about those kids. But she pushes the thought out of her head. There's no time to dwell on what-ifs. And she knows, hey, what better person to get them safely through Jurassic Park than a dinosaur expert on 233. Robert Muldoon. Muldoon recruits Ellie Sattler to administer medication for Ian Malcolm and is carrying Ed Regis's severed leg under his arm on 232. He speaks briskly, no time to waste with social niceties. He's not rude, but he is direct. He begins with, I'm sorry, knowing that he's going to be asking something of her that he wouldn't do to someone unless it were dreadfully important. He tells Sattler that the Tyrannosaur attacked the Land Cruisers, that Malcolm is gravely injured, and that the others haven't been found yet. He speaks slowly as he tells her what happened and that he believes Grant and the kids have entered the park. He's very professional and very gentle about this. He's explaining how desperate he is for her help when she notices the package in his arms, and Muldoon doesn't want to show her that Regis has been dismembered because he doesn't want to escalate the situation, making her worries any greater for Grant and the kids. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm is said to be unconscious in another room in the Safari Lodge, and that he has a leg injury on 232. Dr. Alan Grant. We get a bit of backstory on Grant from Ellie's perspective. She reveals that he's entirely capable of, be- of fending for himself in the wild On 232. Quote, she had known Grant to get out of dangerous situations before. Once he'd been lost in the Badlands for four days when a cliff gave way beneath him and his truck fell a hundred feet into a ravine. Grant's right leg was broken. He had no water, but he walked back on a broken leg. The legend of Alan Grant, everybody. Localities. The visitor center is in this one. The cafeteria inside the visitor center is deserted, we're told, on 228. Apparently everyone who was off at dinner, as mentioned while Wu was investigating the fertilization room and checking the dinosaur DNA for amphibian rana, are no longer here. But where they all are is not said. Ellie's hotel room. Ellie is in her hotel room, which, recall, as mentioned in episode 19, Jurassic Park, is at the Safari Lodge, which is a, quote, dramatic low building with a series of glass pyramids on the roof. On page 86, we were told. Illusions and references, Uh, we have more illusions. So keystrokes, So in this chapter, a series of numerals are listed, each representing a keystroke that Nedry entered. On the ASCII, or the A-S-C-I-I keyboard, each of these numerals represents a key on the keyboard. Theoretically, I should be able to decipher what Nedry typed with a simple replacement cipher. I tried, the results were disappointing. To give you an example, the first five keys are 13, 42, 121, 32, 88. This translates to carriage return, star, Y, space, etc. I thought there might be some neat words or commands or something hidden in there, but it's an entirely uninteresting activity, (laughs) probably random keystrokes. Time not well spent, I tell you. But guys, just know that I did look into it. I wasted my time for you, and you're welcome. White Rabbit Object. This obviously is a reference to Lewis Carroll's White Rabbit in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I got one more Wonderland reference I'm prepared to cite later on in this novel, and so I'll postpone my deeper dive into the allusion to that text in Jurassic Park until then. Uh, Look into the future for episode 59, Descent, for that explication. But the White Rabbit is sort of a MacGuffin that draws Alice into an adventure through Wonderland, where nonsense and chaos are found at every corner, and eating things changes how big you are. The land is run by an unjust monarch, with a penchant for decapitating the people of her kingdom, so there are some allusions to how crazy Jurassic Park is, and how crazy its monarchical tyrant, too, is, both the Tyrannosaurs and Hammond. Mr. Goodbytes. Yeah, Mr. Goodbytes. This is the jumping point of my insane essay. I'm going to publish a separate companion episode for the discussion of this illusion, primarily because the subject matter is far more risque and graphic than what is covered in a regular episode of the Jurassic Park cast, I believe Mr. Goodbytes is an allusion to the film and novel Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is a sad story of a young school teacher who led a promiscuous lifestyle after hours, which was clearly meant to be read as an unorthodox lifestyle due to the overbearing rectitude of her domineering father, and she was horribly murdered while pursuing this lifestyle, becoming the subject of a true-life search for the Goodbar killer. The connectivity of this allusion to Dennis Nedry isn't clear, but suffice it to say, Nedry shared a proclivity for the unorthodox, meaning corporate espionage, as with the protagonist of Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which were her unCatholic appetites, and they both met gruesome, depraved endings. And Nedry's adoption of the pseudonym Mr. Goodbites may be some private joke relating that he's this nefarious super-genius that can get away with crimes, perhaps as hackers or coders may be commonly presented to do. But to go much deeper into the story of Looking for Mr. Goodbar takes this from a family-friendly podcast into, a uh, something else. Here, we don't talk about the depravities of culturally significant murder victims, but rather about dinosaurs eviscerating amusement park operators. And so, the furthermore frank discussion on the illusion is available in the companion podcast called Episode 42B, Looking for Mr. Goodbites. Listener's discretion is advised. Stylistic techniques. In italics, we have missing... Snaps Hammond in italics on 228. Of course I know they're missing in italics, indicating a final eruption of emotion, that emotional lability that Wu described earlier. All the computer displays are written in italics as well, indicating that they are lines of code, not novel text, which is, I guess, handy and much easier to read. Rhetorical questions. Missing? Again? Is Hammond reiterating a statement that he feels is preposterous? Uh, is reiterating... An incredulous statement said to him, and so is asked rhetorically without expectation of an answer. And so let's just wait and see what develops, shall we, on 228? Here he's laying out his expectations, but in a polite way, as if Gennaro were invited to do it with him, as if Hammond gives him any choice in the matter, right? Why hadn't he thought of it before, on 229, is Arnold questioning himself? This is a benefit to us as readers, suggesting that this is a really great option to look... uh, did the keystrokes, and one that he, Arnold, should have already done. It gives him a bit of a scapegoat for not having done it yet, and gives us, who in 1990, as readers, are very likely far less computer literate than the people of 2022, a quick explanation as to what key checks is, and what it does, and how it's going to answer their problems. Ellipses, on the other hand, Ellipsis, on page 232. After espousing the resilience of Dr. Grant and why Ellie wouldn't be worried about him out in the park against the dinosaurs. She knows that the kids are very young. She's not confident that they'll be as resilient as the man she knows so well. The ellipsis indicates that the sentence is left unsaid because she's shaking that thought from her head. M-dash, but surely you can call for a doctor, M-dash, on page 232. Muldoon here interrupts Ellie, taking control of the conversation. The phone lines are down. There is no calling for help. He needs Ellie's support capitalization, the command entered into the computer by Arnold and Wu are presented in all capitals, further clarifying the novel's text, from the computer scripts in italics to the commands inputted by the users all in capitals. At no point is this confusing to read? You always know what is what and so the system worked effectively a good use of capitals and all of that. Literary techniques we have symbolism. Regis's severed leg is kind of a symbol here. Does it symbolize the end of the park? It's upon discovering and handling Regis's leg that Gennaro concludes that the park must be shut down. But Muldoon and Gennaro want to take care of it. Make sure it doesn't bounce around. Keep it hidden. Don't let it disturb the others. He holds it uncomfortably. Doesn't want Sattler to know about it. He hides it from the consultants, too. And recall, Regis wasn't a publicist. He was a cover-up artist. He wasn't sharing what the park was really about. He was covering up all the dastardly deeds that were being perpetrated on the island. And as Gennaro continues to hide the leg, he's continuing to perpetrate that cover-up. So the leg represents closing the park. As these characters continue to hide and not speak about it, it's them deferring the idea. Maybe they can bring this place back. But of course we know we can't put the leg back on Regis, right? (laughs) He's not going to be able to walk again. An interesting symbol. Maybe there's more to it. Informal expressions. Here's the kicker, is said on 230. A kicker is an unexpected and often unpleasant discovery of turn or turn of events. And this is also a term in comedy playing on this trope of delivering the unexpected or rather subverting expectations to make a joke. In this case, the kicker, which resulted in the turn of events in Jurassic Park, is the command white rabbit object. And that's even described as a private joke. Interesting, right? Dramatic irony. One of the most touching moments of dramatic irony that if I had been Spielberg, I would have played up as high as possible is the moment on page 232 when there's a knock at Ellie's door and she thinks it's Alan Grant back from the tour. She's expecting a common reunion with her mentor and friend and instead receives about the worst news next to a police officer standing at your door with his hat off. And what we can imagine as a cheerful and happy Alan is received by us reading with dreadful amounts of dramatic irony, not knowing if Grant and the kids are safe, only that they have fled for their lives into the park away from a Tyrannosaurus. That simple little knock at the door, to me, is a really powerful moment. Motifs, responsibility and safety. Hammond is portrayed through Gennaro's perspective with a chilling detachment to reality. He's not expressing human emotion nor concern for his grandkids, but rather reacting like someone who's got nothing left to lose, someone who's past the point of no return. There's no point at this point doing anything differently, making any changes. Everything has to remain the status quo. The park must open. This isn't necessarily godly, but this is, in a way, inhuman. At this point, Regis is a confirmed death, and Malcolm is knocking at Heaven's door, but Hammond doesn't react with concern or even a sense of responsibility, just admits it was a, quote, regrettable, unfortunate accident, and we're dealing with it. That's all that's happened, he summarizes. That's them being responsible discussions Uh, in terms of show don't tell Gennaro sits with Hammond in a deserted cafeteria on 228 and Gennaro watches Hammond quote deliberately eating and it gives him a chill and this happens sometimes to me obviously a text is showing you something instead of telling you what's going on but you don't really know what it means and by sometimes I mean I bet all kinds of stuff go over my head but the chill Gennaro feels from watching Hammond deliberately eat ice cream is lost on me I could guess what's going on that Hammond is almost robotically eating perhaps like a zombie a soulless, emotionless automaton performing a task that resembles a human task, but it's being performed artificially. That absence of a soul or absence of humanity is revealed in the artificiality with which the task is being performed, betraying that the one performing the task is without a soul, perhaps betraying this disguise. And this is what is discomforting Gennaro. That's an interpretation. I don't know. Crichton's showing us something there when we were told that Hammond eating ice cream gives Gennaro a chill timeline. We're told by Muldoon that, that, quote, the land cruisers were attacked about an hour ago on 232, and we know that they were attacked shortly after Nedry turned off the power at 7 p.m., so it's reasonable to believe it's approximately 8 p.m. right now for anyone who is keeping score. Similarities. So here's some similarities between what's said in the film and what's in the novel. These are always kind of fun to look at. So things that are common between uh, this moment in the book and this moment in the film. Henry Wu says he's trying to turn off the safety systems. That's also said in the book, or in the film. He doesn't want anybody else to see what he's about to do. Finally, here's the kicker. He pointed to the last of the commands Nedry had entered, white rabbit object, which is another discovery by Wu. And later we get the line, what better person to get the kids safely through Jurassic Park than a dinosaur expert on 232. And this line brings comfort to Ellie when thinking about Grant and the kids out in the park. So those three lines up appear in the film. However, there are differences. The line is the same, but it is spoken by Wu in the novel, yet Arnold in the film. Also, it must be noted Arnold's name is Ray in the film, not John, because having Arnold and Hammond both have the name John is lazy. Spielberg wasn't about to let two characters named John make his masterpiece confusing, so he fixed it. Now, look at this next entry. It's the kicker, white rabbit object. Whatever it did, it did it all says Arnold. In a scene in the movie called Restaurants, Ellie arrives after administering Malcolm with some morphine. Apparently, apparently, she's already recruited to play nurse, and then Hammond says the line that Ellie thinks in the novel, to comfort her. They'll all be fine. Who better to guide the children through a Jurassic Park than a dinosaur expert? This scene, though, comes before we spend any time with Grant and the kids after they've escaped into the park. We still, at this point, do not know how they are far- faring. Whereas in the movie, they're already camped up in a tree watching the Brachiosaurus trumpet to each other in a scene called A Tree for My Bed. Remember that. So these lines are a little out of sequence, but well adapted into the film all the same. And before we sign off today, again, a big, big thank you to, to I Know Danos, Garrett, and Sabrina. It was a privilege to have you on. Thank you very much. And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park. You can do that by connecting with me. I'm at RyanSRogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line. We can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. The Jurassic Park cast is a part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's funny pages. Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, The Second Lapse graphic novelettes, The Infantry, and the worst of them all, The King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com springchickencapers. For me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Twitter's still there for now. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park podcast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too Until next time.